From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. This podcast is called Now Thy Image Doth Appear. There's no doubt you've seen images of Shakespeare, maybe in a book, a museum, or an ad on the wall of a bus stop. So it's safe to say, you imagine that you have a pretty good idea of what Shakespeare looked like. Oxford University professor Catherine Duncan-Jones has written a book that invites you to question your assumptions and maybe take a new look. As you'll hear, there really are only a few likenesses of Shakespeare where we're pretty sure we know that the face in the image is his. She offers her theories on why that might be and tells us what's known about where these images came from. Catherine is interviewed by Rebecca Shear. As far as legitimate portraits of Shakespeare go, portraits that can be verified as actually being of Shakespeare, how many do we have? In the book you say it's just three? Well, being of Shakespeare, of course, is itself problematic. Um, That is, are they taken from life? Can they be seen as being of Shakespeare? Really, there are only three images that were almost certainly created by people who had seen Shakespeare and knew what he looked like, even if he didn't actually sit necessarily for all three of those images. Well, the first question that seems important then is, why, why don't we have more? I think there are various reasons why we don't have more. One very big reason, I mean, we now live in a very visual age and we have f- film and lots of reproductive processes. Shakespeare's age wasn't so visual in that way. And there are quite a lot of writers of the Elizabethan period of whom we don't have an image at all. Uh, but what I think, what I myself think is possibly more relevant to Shakespeare himself is that he was both a playwright, a poet, and an actor, and almost certainly an actor who played a major part in directing his own plays. And he lived in two places, London and Stratford, and journeys between those two places probably took two to three days every time he made them, sometimes longer than that. And this didn't leave him with very much time for sitting for his portrait. Well, how much time does it take to sit for an artist? I mean, how long would it take to get such a portrait painted? Well, to the uh, the highest standards of Elizabethan portraiture, it would take quite a long time for a really good, large oil portrait. But even for something less than top class, I would have thought that it couldn't take less than a day. But I think a day in Shakespeare's very, very busy and active life might have been more than he could easily spare at many phases of his life. Does the fact that we only have a handful of pictures of him suggest at all that maybe he wasn't as famous then as he is now? I don't think it does mean that. I think he was extremely famous quite early in his career. He became very successful with his very first long poem, Venus and Adonis, which was quoted, I mean, there's plenty of evidence that that was very widely read. It was published under his name. I I think he was quite famous quite early. But then as his writings developed, the plays also became very, very famous, not just as plays that everyone enjoyed, but plays that William Shakespeare had written. You do a really nice job in your book of discussing how if we look at the stories behind portraits of other writers, we could get an idea as to why there aren't more Shakespeare portraits. Can you tell us about that? 
Um, yes. Well, for instance, there is Samuel Daniel, who was almost an exact contemporary of Shakespeare's, who didn't write plays for the public theatres. He was very prolific, and he cultivated wealthy patrons, and that was how a great many of the successful Elizabethan and Jacobean writers made their money. They, they had patrons who would look after them financially and encourage them in some cases to write a particular kind of poem or a particular kind of work. Yes, Michael Drayton might be a better example than Samuel Daniel because he also grew up in Warwickshire, like Shakespeare. They were almost exactly the same age. They lived only about 25 miles apart from each other, may even have known each other as boys. Michael Drayton had had very, very comfortable relationships with patrons who paid him money to keep him going while he was writing and Shakespeare doesn't appear to have had a major patron in quite the same way. Something you mentioned in the book is that some of Shakespeare's contemporaries had patrons who were women, wealthy women. And you suggest that, that rich married women were more inclined to commission visual images as mementos. Why would that be? Well, they had the leisure that their husbands didn't have. They could often devote much more time to encouraging and cultivating other writers than their husbands did. And in some cases, the wives had quite a lot of money to spend. Um, But it is striking that all of Shakespeare's patrons do appear to have been male. You talk in the book about this kind of Mount Rushmore of writers and great thinkers at the Bodleian Library at Oxford, and Shakespeare is not there. Who is there? Well, all sorts of, they are a rather odd selection. I mean, they go back to very early writers like Plato and Sophocles, the tragedian. I mean, there's a tremendous assortment of ancient and not quite so ancient and more or less contemporary figures among the 206, is it, images. But what they virtually all, there's just one woman, that is the poet Sappho, And they're all, in one way or another, I think, virtually all could be described as learned, scholarly, knowing more than one language. And Shakespeare, though he had been to a grammar school, but he he, he was described by Ben Jonson as having small Latin and less Greek. And I think that probably sums up the level of his learning. So at the time that this frieze was done, and it's a frieze at the Bodleian Library, perhaps he just wasn't considered great enough to be memorialized there? I, I think that's right, yes. I mean, he just hadn't hadn't made it, no. I want to go back to those three representations of Shakespeare that you talk about in the book. There's a painting, there's an engraving, and then there's a bust. And let's start with the bust. It's in the memorial to Shakespeare in the church in Stratford. Can you describe for us what this bust looks like? In the book, you make it sound like it's, it's not very attractive. It's not very attractive for, <laughs> for various reasons. Shakespeare looks rather bald and his head is a somehow rather unattractive and rather sort of puffed out cheeks. He looks a bit swollen. His eyes don't seem quite right. He has a rather smug expression. And, um, I mean, he has been described by one Shakespeare scholar, David Wilson, as looking looking like a pork butcher. Though I don't <laughs> think pork butchers necessarily have to look porky. But in, in the Stratford bust, it has to be said that this rather plump and smug-looking chap who is depicted just does seem sort of rather fat, a bit pleased with himself. And actually, he's not wearing a laurel crown, which would have made his bald head look rather prettier, and he just doesn't look very attractive. But I don't think we can trust that bust. 
for all sorts of reasons, but the chief reason is that it needed restoration after barely 20 years. So the images of it, it's undergone so much restoration and so much, well, in a way, way, vandalism, as with Edmund Malone, who got the whole thing painted white, and then eventually the white was taken off and it was recoloured. And with that huge long gap, people didn't really know exactly what the colouring and the detail was like. The second portrait you talk about in the book is this engraving. It's the one we see of Shakespeare in the front of the first folio. It's so intriguing that, as you say in the book, portrait engravings are almost always based on some picture, but we have no idea what this one is based on? They would always have to be based on, I mean, I suppose they could be based on another engraving, but that's unlikely in this case. Yes, there are a lot of problems about the Grosshoot. What I'm going to, I don't, my Dutch is not very good, but Grosshoot engraving shows us in Shakespeare. And one of the problems, I think, is that this is the frontispiece to what's called the first folio, that is, the first collected edition of all of Shakespeare's plays. And it was terribly expensive getting these 36 plays all printed and compiled into the volume. And the first section of the volume was what was actually worked on last. And by the time they reached the portrait and the frontispiece, they were really running out of money very badly. So I think the suit engraving was done on the cheap. And we don't know what it's based on. And it also is not very attractive. Why do we call it the suit engraving? Well, it is it has it is initialed M Drosuit. It's it's certainly the work of a an originally Netherlandish engraver, and there were really quite a lot of Drosuits. I mean, there were a lot of Dutch engravers who um, migrated to London and had families of 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 engravers who who were very very skilled artists in many cases. Unfortunately, there were several with the surname Drosuit and the initial M and. The jury is still, I think, out and out, not absolutely certain on which member of the Rosuit family actually should be credited with the first folio engraving. I'm inclined to think uh, that there is a kind of joke going on on the opposite page when Ben Johnson write, wrote some verses about, about the engraving and said, look, not on his picture, but his book. And I think... Johnson saw that it was a really rather clumsy and shoddy and inadequate piece of work and better turn the page and start reading The Tempest. <laughs> it's, not a very, it's, not, it's not a very charming picture. Just ignore and this picture. it's possibly picture. not a particularly good likeness. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he said it was for gentle Shakespeare put, which almost implies this is meant to be Shakespeare, but I'm not sure that it is. And as I understand it, the draw suit got worse with subsequent printings because they kept reusing well, because, the same yes. plate. That's right. I mean, the, the original print run was a very substantial one, and it was repeatedly reprinted because we have the we have second folio, second, third, fourth folios, and the um, actual metal plate, which had to be pressed very hard on uh, to be with its ink on the paper, became, if anything, even less attractive. And rather, as with the bust, were attempts to make it better by repainting it or tinkering with it in some way, mostly made it worse. Let's turn now to the third portrait you talk about in the book. This is the Shendos portrait. And you say that of all the portraits that have been claimed as likenesses of Shakespeare done from life, this is the one that truly holds its own. How do we know that it's probably real? I think we know it's probably real because it was, um, it, it was 
belonged to Shakespeare's playing company rather than to Shakespeare himself or his patrons and can be traced from very early on to have been owned by actors who knew what Shakespeare looked like and probably the first actor who both painted it and owned it was a very promising up-and-coming actor trained by Shakespeare, Joseph Taylor, who is on record as having been both a player and a painter. And almost certainly he, in, on, in some quiet afternoon, probably not even a whole day, did this oil painting of the great Shakespeare. Um, so it, it isn't a brilliant piece of workmanship, but it does have life and animation and that mysterious thing called presence. I think if one looks at the Shandos portrait, there is a sense there's someone there. You feel almost almost embarrassing. There's a strong sense of a personality there and a presence. And he seems, yes, there's one thing it has in common with the bust. In the bust, have I mentioned, Shakespeare's lips are just ever so slightly parted, as if he is about to speak. And the Shandos portrait also shows him with his lips slightly parted as if he is has either just finished speaking or is about to speak. And this, that's, that contributes, I think, to the sense of presence in the Shandos painting. There's been a question over the years of whether this portrait was painted by Joseph Taylor, as you suggest, or a John Taylor. Where does that confusion come from? That's right. Until, really, very recently, it's been claimed that it, it, it was the, the work of a John Taylor, and nobody has really decisively pinned down. The trouble is, the, turn, the surname Taylor and the Christian name John are two very, very common names. And even among trained painters, there are an awful lot of John Taylors. Received opinion in, say, the last 50 or more years among art historians and experts on portraits of the period has been that it was the work of someone called John Taylor. And this is because there is manuscript, there are manuscript allusions to uh, J.O. Colon Taylor. Um, so if he had his name shortened, as a lot of people did in that period, just to two letters, J.O. Colon Taylor, which John Taylor was it? And was it perhaps not? This was the breakthrough that I feel I met, made about a year ago, that perhaps it wasn't John, perhaps it was a Joseph Taylor and was the rather well-documented young actor, Joseph Taylor. Uh, where, where do we get that J.O. Taylor? Uh, we get it partly from the notebooks of a man called George Virtue. We get it from several 17th century witnesses of people who were deeply involved in the London theatre that it was probably fairly reliably believed to be the work of somebody. We can agree at least the initial was J and the surname was Taylor. The question is really whether J.O. Colon, which would be quite a normal, it's a rather ambiguous um, abbreviation because it could refer either to John or to Joseph. And I've suggested, but nobody has actually found a John who seems to be the right kind of age in the right kind of place to have created this very attractive and lively, though slightly rough, painting. But but Joseph Taylor does fit in terms of dates and likely proximity to Shakespeare and likely skill in um, filling a, a morning or an afternoon, producing a, a very attractive memento of, of the older man. I want to talk now about some of the other Shakespeare portraits that have emerged through the centuries. Uh, do I have it right that you say there have been at least 60 fake Shakespeare portraits? 
60 portraits alleged by somebody at some time to be of Shakespeare, which are not now generally believed to be of Shakespeare, yes. Okay. And there are four portraits that you talk about in the book that I'd like for you to comment on. We have the Flower Portrait, the Sanders Portrait, the Grafton Portrait, and the Cobb Portrait. Give us the lowdown on the first one, the Flower Portrait. Um, the Flower Portrait is it, its rather sad in a way because it's a very attractive painting and it was given to the um, Royal Shakespeare Company as a, a wonderful, splendid honouring of Shakespeare through this fairly recently discovered portrait. But unfortunately, it didn't survive some tests in terms of the kind of paint that it was done with, and it does turn out to be a fake. It's a very attractive, it's more attractive, one might say, than some of the, any of the three, in inverted commas, authentic historical images of Shakespeare, but it is, alas, a 19th century creation. And the Cobb portrait? Tell us about that one. Uh, The Cobb portrait isn't a fake. It's a very splendid Jacobean portrait, which I am not convinced is of Shakespeare. Hmm. For various reasons that I think are probably a bit too complicated to go into here. One is that, well, the two main reasons why I don't think it's of Shakespeare. Um, It's a very grand painting and will have required expensive work by a fully trained and practised limner. I'm not sure who would have paid for that during Shakespeare's lifetime. Also, the young man portrayed is wearing a very, very grand lace collar of a kind that would normally be worn, I would think, by very few young men below the rank of noblemen. Shakespeare certainly wasn't a nobleman. And then the final reason is that I think it's one of a whole group of portraits of an unfortunate nobleman called Sir Thomas Overbury, who was who died in the Tower of London, having to having got into trouble with King James. And I think that it is one of the portrait. It is a portrait of Overbury. I, I don't think it's a fake, but I think it's a very splendid painting. But I don't think it depicts Shakespeare. So where did the idea come from that it it is of Shakespeare? It, it came from the owner, um, uh, Mr. Alec Cobb who saw it and then saw a portrait of Shakespeare in the Folger, which was then thought to be of Shakespeare, is actually of Thomas Overbury. And then moving sideways, Mr Alec Cobb's very splendid portrait is very, very like the one at the Folger, as Mr Cobb himself recognised. Very fine portrait. I don't myself think that it is of Shakespeare. What's the story of the Sanders portrait? Um, The Sanders portrait has been traced back to a man called John Sanders, who was 19th century, so it doesn't go, the provenance doesn't go very far back. And it has been thought to be possibly authentic because there's a bit of paper attached to the back of the wood panel, painting on wood panel, um, which gives the, the birth and death dates and the right age for Shakespeare. But it does appear that the label was written and attached to the back of the painting at a considerably later date. Um, Somebody wanted to claim that it was of Shakespeare and wrote this label and put it on the back. And of course, in a way, nothing is more easy than to write something on the back on a bit of paper and stick it on the back of a portrait. So it's, it's a mistake rather than a fake. It's just a portrait which for a period of time was believed to be authentic. You do some great detective work in the book because the date given for Shakespeare's birth 
is April 23rd. That's St. George's Day. But you write that that wasn't adopted as his official birthday until the 18th century. Well, exactly, exactly. Yes, because it's a notional date it's, it, rather than a real date. And that's one of the reasons why it's more recently been decided that the bit of paper was an attempt to mistaken uh, attribution. So let's talk about the fourth portrait now, the Grafton portrait. Yes. Well, this is quite an attractive portrait that seems to be of the period. The age is right. He's age 24 in 1588, and that is what Shakespeare's age would have been. But he would have... 24 is very, very young. I mean, Shakespeare was had a had a daughter and then twins. He was the father of three. He was only 24. He wasn't yet in any way a man of substance or wealth, though he may have already been either considering joining a, an acting company or might already have joined one to bring money into the family. It's very hard to know who in 1588 would have painted Shakespeare's portrait. It doesn't look very much like the other images, the the three that we've already looked at. Um, It it just doesn't really seem seem to work. And I think the general opinion is that it's, it's a genuine Elizabethan portrait of a young man who happened to be the same age as William Shakespeare. Um, But he's not William Shakespeare. Um, Also, its provenance is rather odd. Perhaps I should just read you a bit, a bit. The owners recalled an old family tradition that the portrait had been bequeathed by one of the Dukes of Grafton to their ancestor, a yeoman farmer in the village of Grafton, Northamptonshire, five or six generations previously. Well, that seems to me a bit of a cock and bull story. Why would a Grand Duke bequeath a a portrait that he believed to be of the already extremely famous Shakespeare to a yeoman farmer who probably wouldn't have a grand enough house to display a very good Elizabethan portrait. It's just, it just doesn't doesn't ring true. Catherine, is there some motivation to, to fake an image of Shakespeare or to claim that an image is of Shakespeare? Yes, I mean, people are wanting, uh, there was huge, was and is huge motivation. I would love to find an image of Shakespeare. Because we read him, we see him performed, we think he's wonderful. And, I mean, even now, one would quite, it's, a, it's trivial, it doesn't in a way matter what he looked like, uh, but it'd be lovely to know what he looked like. So we go on wanting to know what he looked like, but it's a desire that will probably never be satisfied. So you say it doesn't matter what he looked like, which then leads me to ask, why write a book about his portrait? Well, it's interesting in itself, I think, as a, as a bit of art history, but it's also interesting to see what people have either thought Shakespeare looked like or thought that he, was, he, he, he ought to have looked like. But, of course, the real sort of story behind it is something almost bigger than portraiture, and that is who was the man who wrote those plays, which we are still responding to and seeing performed and engaging with, we're sort of bound to to be curious to have some sort of idea of what this great writer might have looked like in the flesh, even though the desire can probably never be fully satisfied. Well, Catherine Duncan-Jones, thank you so much. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Catherine Duncan-Jones is Professor Emerita of English Literature at Oxford and an honorary professor of English at University College London. Her book, Portraits of Shakespeare was published by Oxford's Bodleian Library in 2015. Catherine was interviewed by Rebecca Shear. 
Now Thy Image Doth Appear was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor and Esther Farrington. We had help from Nick Morbath at Evolution Recording Studios in Oxford. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.